Hello, I'm Huronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode, you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world. It's characters, composers, politics, places, popes, kings and queens. Today, sharing the microphone with me, maskless and in person no less, is Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Ahead of the Brandenburg's latest Baroque music film, Baroque in Bloom, Alan and I have a lot of ground to cover with the origins of the violin, several lesser-known Italian composers in Marini and Gregori, as well as trio sonatas, sinfonias, obscure music publications, and undated manuscripts. So, wherever you are, sit back, relax, and join Alan and I for an engrossing and rather long discussion ahead of Baroque in Bloom. Alan, it is a real pleasure having you with me today. And again, we are back in the same room. It's fantastic. Not even with masks on while we make this recording. It's fantastic. (laughs) Nice to be here, Hugh. Now, uh, today we are going to be talking about a very special program. In fact, the second only uh, Baroque music film uh, that the Brandenburg is going to be releasing just later this month, Baroque in Bloom. Now, you've had uh, the, the pleasure of a sneak preview, as it were. Um, were you impressed? What, what did you think of, of, of what you saw? Sure, it's wonderful to see. Uh, I mean, it looks great visually, but the sound is terrific and uh, very nice to see that um, the different pieces uh, are being led by different musicians from the orchestra and it shows off the kind of expertise and the professionalism of the, uh, all the players who you see every time playing in the orchestra that they're also experts who can take their turn at leading and guiding the rest of the orchestra in their own interpretation of a particular piece. And how impressive to have two young violinists, James Tarbotton and James Armstrong, leading the Corelli that they they play in this program. I mean, I don't remember doing uh, things as fantastic as that at their age. That's wonderful to see. And uh, I remember them both as students at the Conservatorium and James Tarbotton in particular uh, specialised in the Brock violin all the way through his degree. And uh, so it's wonderful to see him coming out now as a professional with all those skills to to lead in this um, expressive, wonderful music that he gets to direct along with, um, with the other James. And you've mentioned some of the, the directors. Now, we have, uh, aside from Paul Dyer, who directs the Vivaldi on the program, RV116, we have Madeline Easton, we have Matthew Bruce, Matthew Greco, Raphael Font, and James and James. That makes for a lot of different directors, but uh, aside from Paul, all of them are violinists. That's right, because this is, of course, string music. It's a very violinistic program and so wonderful to hear the strings of the orchestra all together. Now, violin making um, and the origin of the violin, obviously we know and love the instrument uh, today, but it didn't just come out of nowhere. It was an iterative process. Where does this story really start? What do we know about the the origins of of bowed stringed instruments that eventually lead us to the violin and, and the violin family? Well, yes, we talk about the violin as if it's a, an individual thing. And actually, it has been extremely stable in the way that violins have been designed and made really since the 16th century. So it's a long time that violins have, that have been essentially the identifiable instrument that we still know today and that are still being made today. However, of course, they didn't 
spring out of nothing, and uh, we can trace the origins back to uh, at least the Middle Ages, where we have instruments like the VL and the Rebec, which were bowed string instruments um, played in a similar way, either um, under the neck or on the chest, um, but also played in, in all sorts of other ways. So you could have the, it played, for example, um, a lot of the same instruments could be played either bowed or plucked. Mm. Uh, they could be strummed. They could be played uh, sitting on the knees or between the knees in the, the style of a cello. Even some really tiny instruments could be played on the knees uh, and bowed that way. So um, it was much less standardised than it is today. But what came out of that was the development of really still a quite a variety of, of bowed string instruments in up to the 16th century. So uh, when modern violins started to be made during that period, they were kind of competing with a range of, of other instruments um, which were used for similar purposes. And in particular, the viol family, which existed in parallel with the violin family. Yes, and and the viol family. I think there's a bit of a misconception, maybe that um, was the this this family of instruments was a precursor to the violin family. But as you've said, it it was actually a competitor, a direct uh, competition, uh, as it were. Now, um, just before we move on, um, what about uh, the the term that some listeners may be familiar with, legno di risonanza, resonance wood? Uh, what actual materials are these instruments made out of? What, what was used at the time and what is still used uh, to make violins. Uh, violin makers experimented with the different woods they had available to them, as they still do today, of course. So Australian violin makers, for example, have often experimented with Australian timbers to see how they would work. But uh, the ones that were available to uh, the violin makers in northern Italy who really established the trade in Cremona uh, in the 16th century. So they used their local timbers. And I know you've been looking into that a bit, uh, Hugh. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you found out? Well, yes, and there's almost a, a, a sort of family uh, a story of, 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 of essentially where this uh, where this wood comes from for me personally because my, my grandmother, my nonna, actually comes from this part of Italy. And the, the wood from the Dolomiti, the alpine spruce, was literally rolled, cut down, and, and rolled down the hill to barges where then it would be transported further south, um, uh, essentially along the River Po and, and the, the river system in, in Italy that was a very useful uh, tool for basically sending all of this material around the, the country and especially further south. And uh, Cremona, being situated where it is, um, happened to become a, a seat of, of trade and also one of the stops along the way where this wood would um, be sold to all sorts of um, wood carvers and, and carpenters. And, uh, and of course, instrument makers uh, sprung up in, in uh, Cremona too. Uh, one name in particular comes to the fore uh, when we talk about Cremona and instrument making, and it's Andrea Amati. Now, he is perhaps well-known among luthiers. Perhaps you could tell us about Andrea Amati. Who was th this man, and, and, and do you know maybe a little bit about his influence um, and his role in this tale? Yeah, Andrea Marti seems to be the first uh, musician, or rather the first luthier, that is uh, instrument maker, who set up in Cremona and established a kind of dynasty of makers, His, uh, as was typical in, in any other trade, really. You, your children followed you in the trade, and so that's what happened in his family. Um, and so he seems to have established the making of violins in pretty much the modern form quite early on in the 16th century. And then the business was taken over by his uh, two sons, Antonio Amati and his brother Girolamo, um, and uh, 
they're often known as the brothers Amati, but it was particularly Antonio Amati who went on to be uh, the really influential maker of violins um, in that period. Uh, but it's worth noticing that even the son, Antonio Amati, was born in 1540 mm. and he died in 1607. So he really predates the period that we think of, think of now as the Baroque. He lived through what we would call a Renaissance. And so it's in that period that this kind of violin making is established and the violin gradually kind of catches on as being an art music instrument. Mm. So earlier on, uh, it had been, that kind of instrument had been considered more a kind of noisy outdoor instrument for playing dance music and so on, whether, whereas the viol type instruments are more sophisticated indoor instruments. Mm. Um, but gradually, as the construction of violins becomes more sophisticated and the taste in music and the uses of instruments for uh, for making art music, I guess, changes through this period, um, the violin really takes off as being the most suitable instrument for virtuosic instrumental playing, um, particularly into the 17th century. And it, it, it sort of mirrors what even happens nowadays with fashion trends and these sorts of things. Uh, you know, what, what might seem trendy or new um, may not be generally well accepted by the public initially, eventually does, does catch on. And Andrea Amati was clearly at the forefront of a sound, a particular type of sound, a louder sound, uh, a more articulate sound that his uh, violins, which he was obviously in the process of, of developing, not just the violin, but the viol, and the, the, the violoncello were producing that wasn't necessarily so pleasant to the ears of people at the time who were used to a more mellow sound from the, the viol family of instruments. Mm. Um, how do the two sounds differ to, to your ears? Alan, you've heard both of these instruments. Uh, yeah, certainly the violin um, makes a, a kind of bright, clear sound. Um, even you know, we think of it now with the modern violin with steel strings and so forth, makes an even brighter and, uh, and very carrying sound. Uh, and so in comparison to that, we tend to think of the Baroque violin with its gut strings and so forth as being a kind of softer, earthier sound. But if we go back even further, then uh, and as instrument technology was being developed with things like the sound post and the, the bass bar and so forth within um, the violin family instruments, it makes the sound more robust and more carrying. Um, and so, again, it makes those instruments uh, suitable at the time for kind of loud dance music and mm. so forth, where your, uh, your string instrument has to compete with instruments like shawms and sackbutts and so forth, sort of early trombones and the predecessor of the oboe, which is a much louder, brighter instrument. Um, so it needed to be quite a powerful carrying instrument. And in fact, in the 16th century, the court of the, the King of France, um, I think it was Henry V, uh, they, uh, had the, they had violins as part of the court music, but they were attached to what was called the music of the great stable. That is the outdoor musicians, they were the trumpeters and drummers and the shawm players who mm. played for uh, fanfares and marching, marching bands for the military and that kind of thing. And it was only into the 17th century that the violins were actually brought indoors, as it were, as the taste in music changed and perhaps the need for... Um, um, louder music in, in larger spaces indoors uh, may have been part of that as well. Mm. And indeed, anyone who has come to a Brandenburg Noel Noel concert would be familiar with sackbuts because they feature regularly as part of, of that particular series. And and they are, uh, uh, you know, almost like for like with a trombone, a modern trombone. The sound that they create is very bright and... and um, and you know, brassy. So competing with that sound, we can imagine why the violin was obviously uh, necessary in those outdoor settings. 
Yeah, that's right. And the, uh, yeah, we can say the sackbut is um, probably, or the trombone is the instrument that has changed least from the Middle Ages up to the present. It's essentially the same instrument, just the, some of the technology of the, the um, metal uh, fabrication and the size of the bell has changed, but the basic technology of the instrument is exactly the same. But one of the advantages it has is that it can play both soft and loud. If you really push the sackbut, it can make a really blaring, uh, exciting sound, but if you play it softly, it can also be quite gentle, and so they were one of the instruments that could be used both indoors and outdoors. And so violins kind of fit, gradually fit into that pattern as well. Mm. They can be bright and noisy for outdoors, but they can also be quite sophisticated and, and gentle for indoor playing. And there's almost a, a, trend, a tr- sorry, there's almost a trend across the Baroque of exactly that sort of thing happening. When we think of the wind instruments and we think of the progression from recorders to um, you know, the traverso flute, for example, having more dynamic control, being able to be louder or uh, softer, whereas the recorder is a bit dynamically challenged, as it were. You know, this this tendency to have more dynamic inflection in the music itself, um, suited to a wider array of, of settings for performance, it it makes a lot of sense. It does. So interestingly, that that one about the you know the flute and the recorder is a little bit like the question about the viol and the violin. We tend to think of the flute took over from the recorder as yes. a more sophisticated modern instrument. Not entirely the case. They existed in parallel for quite a long time, and they had existed in parallel for a couple of centuries uh, mm. before the period we're talking about um, but the technology of the flute was kind of redesigned in the 1680s around the court of the, of the King of France um, and at the same time as they were developing the oboe um, mm. the Baroque oboe as we know it today out of the shawm and the bassoon was developed out of its predecessors like the kirtle and so forth so we see this kind of progression of instrument technology happening which makes the instruments more uh, flexible able to do different kinds of things um, and to suit the kind of music that's being composed at the time. But I suppose in that context, one of the interesting things is the violin doesn't significantly change from Mm. the 16th century onwards. There Mm. continues to be um, experimentation with small things, just little adjustments to the shape and the timbers and and so forth. But fundamentally, it's the same instrument from the the mid-16th century up to the present day. Yes, it's a credit to Andrea Marti that the design that he essentially fostered and championed um, still to this day guides luthiers um, with with how they produce their instruments. Now, uh, one, one thing that I did want to make a point in terms of the violin then, back to our composers... So who were the clients of, uh, you know, your Amati family and, and, uh, and these sorts of luthiers? Obviously, people were requiring these instruments for a particular purpose. And, and how was the use of this violin instrument changing over time? Um, perhaps you could tell us about the evolution of music where the violin is becoming more of a solo instrument, as it were. Yeah, in the 16th century, there was not that much call for solo um, instruments played in this way, uh, other than in fairly specific situations. So you might have in some situations uh, dance music where you would play um, a solo kind of part, perhaps improvised over a repeating bass, the kind of thing 
um, that, that often happened into the 17th century, um, you may have uh, a situation where certain kinds of string instruments were actually played and sung with um, by the one player, and that's something we might talk about a little bit more. Um, but for the most part, instruments were played in consorts, that is in groups of instruments of different sizes. So in the same way that um, many listeners will be familiar with the recorder consort, where you have the uh, discount, treble, tenor and bass recorders um, together, kind of like a choir of voices of mm. different pitches. And so they had flute ensembles and uh and in your violin ensemble, therefore, you would need violins of different sizes. So Amati made uh, the, the usual small violin, but he also made violas of different sizes. Um, the, the one that's uh, kind of like the modern viola is the alto viola, but he also made tenor violas, which were uh, a size bigger again, and, uh, and as well as cellos, of course. Mm. And so together they make an ensemble, but they were not used in quite the same way that they came to be used as an orchestral set, but rather just a group of individual instruments that could um, play the same kind of music the voices did for the most part. Uh, where you would uh, simply be replacing your uh, soprano, alto, tenor bass voices with um, instruments of different sizes. And in that way, it operates in parallel. It can do similar kinds of things to what you could do with viols or with recorders or flutes or whatever your instruments were. And while you were talking, you reminded me of this wonderful quote that I've read recently um, from Giovanni Battista Doni. Now, th- he's writing in 1640, um, so it's obviously uh, quite a quite a long time after um, Andrea Marti's um, instruments were firstly being developed. But, um, but talking exactly to that point about... Uh, about the role of the violin, and he says, Of all the musical instruments, how truly marvellous is the nature of the violin, for none other with such a small body and so few strings contains such a great diversity of sounds, harmonies, and melodic ornaments, and expresses the human voice not only in song, in which other wind instruments may also succeed, but in speech itself. This one imitates so well in those quick, virtuosic passages when the adept hand comes to manage it, that it is a thing of wonder. And, you know, it's, it's just fabulous that, um, that obviously the instrument was able to not just um, become a partner for, for voices, but then uh, almost a substitute yeah, that's a fantastic quote. I have to get you to send me that. I was talking about exactly this in my lectures at the conservatorium a couple of weeks ago. I wish I'd had that one to quote to them. Well, that's all right. I, I have your email. I'll send it through. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it, it's exactly the sort of thing that um, that we talk about and what's happening at the beginning of the 17th century because um, the violin really takes over as the solo instrument at that point. And I think the reason is because uh, in northern Italy it's exactly the time when solo singing is being developed, um, whereas through the 16th century the normal form of art music for voices was primarily polyphony where you had things like madrigals where you sing in four, five, six parts, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, um, but all singing together in polyphony. Whereas at the end of the 16th century, um, the famous uh, Camerata, the discussion group of Count Bardi in Florence, was talking about how do we develop a kind of singing in which you can represent an individual character uh, rather than a whole group of people singing together. And this is the origin, of course, of where opera comes from. So the Mm. first operas are developed at the very end of the 16th into the first years of the 17th century and it's based on this ability to have solo singing which is accompanied just by a a continuo group uh, a group of instruments playing the bass line and the harmony and once you can do that with voices then 
instrumentalists start copying that style as well. And uh, Frescobaldi does that on the keyboard, and uh, a, a number of violin composers uh, start doing that for solo violin, and one of the most notable of those is uh, a man by the name of Marini. Yes, now, Biagio Marini is probably little known to the general public today, but certainly was a remarkable and virtuosic violinist. Uh, his influence um, is uh, still noted uh, to this day uh, and still felt with a violin competition that's named after him in Neuburg, uh, Germany. Uh, perhaps you could tell us about uh, Biagio Marini and, and his music. Yeah, uh, it's a wonderful thing that they have a violin competition named after Marini because he was such an influential uh, composer and player of the violin in the early part of the 17th century. Um, he was born in 1594 in Brescia and uh, he died in Venice, but he spent his career moving around all over the place. Um, he spent what must have been a really formative five years from 1615 to 1620, so when he was from when he was about 19, to 24 in Venice, where he was employed as a violinist at the Church of St. Mark, San Marco, the, the famous, um, now the cathedral, uh, the but then the Doge's personal chapel, actually, it was in Venice, uh, which was directed by none other than Claudio Monteverdi. <laughs> so how good a training is that? Um, after that, he went and, and worked in many cities across northern Italy and also in Germany. So mm. he had a really kind of broad-ranging experience, um, learnt from and no doubt taught a lot of other musicians uh, uh, all over. Um, you know, it was almost the, the known world as far as musicians were concerned. At the I, I was surprised reading myself about uh, about his his past, his his biography, the number of posts that he held, and often not for very long, only a, a few months uh, at most, almost job hopping, as it were. Yeah, I hope that wasn't a bad sign that he <laughs> that he was a hard man to work with. I don't think we have any uh, evidence to tell us that, but um, certainly he he got around, and that. All of that experience must have uh, influenced the way that he, he played as a, a virtuoso player, but also the extraordinary amount of music that he wrote. Well, if it's anything to go by, uh, he was knighted by one of his employers, in fact, one of his, his first major employer, in 1626, Wolfgang Wilhelm, Duke of Neuburg, um, hence where the, the competition is still held, and uh, returned to the, the Duke's service on four separate occasions. So if he was welcomed readily, he obviously liked him. <laughs> One of the interesting things about Marini is that uh, very unusually for the period, nearly all the music, in fact, all of the music except one individual piece that has survived by Marini is published music. Now, uh, as you know, Hugh, um, and probably many listeners will know, that most of the music that we have from this period uh, is um, survives in manuscript, not as printed publications. In fact, relatively little music was printed during this time, and most of that was where there was a substantial market for it. So it tended to be things like hymn books and so forth, which you would need many copies. Uh, but in the case of Marini, uh, there are um, just uh, uh, several opus numbers worth of, uh, public, of publications of printed music, um, that does suggest that it was music that he prepared for publication and therefore thought carefully about and, uh, mm. and carefully um, kind of curated almost uh, 
acts to be the music that would kind of represent him internationally um, through publication. Uh, and so through that collection, we can see the kind of variety of, of material that he composed, uh, which represented just about all of the going instrumental genres of the time, apart from solo keyboard music he didn't write, but because he focused, of course, on the violin. Mm. Um, but also on other solo instruments at the time, especially the cornetto was the other um, major kind of soloistic instrument of that period, uh, an instrument we hear a lot in Monteverdi's music and so forth, which is, um, for, for those who are not familiar, not like the modern trumpet or cornet at all. It's uh, an instrument uh, which looks almost more like a clarinet or a recorder or something like that with finger holes, but its mouthpiece is a little tiny trumpet-type mouthpiece, and so it makes a brassy kind of sound, and it was often – it blends beautifully with voices. Mm. And it was also the other kind of – it and the violin were the two sort of virtuoso solo instruments at the time. Now, in Baroque in Bloom, we're going to see a, a particular piece by Marini called the Capriccio Personari il Violino con tre corde a modo di lira. Now, that's a very long title for, mm. for a piece. But so I have two questions for you um, just from this title itself, Alan. Firstly, what is a lira da braccio? Okay. Uh, so in, uh, when he says a modo di lira in the style of a, of a lyre, yes. um, so he's not talking about the ancient Greek lyre. It is um, a at the time, a modern Italian instrument or an instrument that was probably going out of fashion mm. by this time. So there's a probably a kind of um, historical or, or kind of archaic element to the, the composition that's looking back on this long tradition of playing on the Lira uh, del Baraccio, which was an instrument that looks a bit like a violin, but it belongs actually more to the viol family. Uh, so it's almost uh, people who are familiar with the viola de gamba, for example, that's the big cello-sized version of the viol family. But there were also much smaller ones, right down to ones you could hold up to your shoulder in the way that you would play a violin. Mm. So the little braccio is of that type. Um, it had uh, generally seven strings, of which five were uh, on the fingerboard in the normal way that you would play kind of the way you would play a violin. The other two strings were off the fingerboard and they were ones that so you, you can bow them but you can't stop them with your fingers because they're, they're off to the side of the, the fingerboard. Um, and so these could provide drones or bass notes uh, and they would also just resonate by themselves when you were playing on the other strings to some extent. They would just pick up the vibration of the other strings mm. and, and add to the kind of warmth of the sound. And one of the significant differences between the viol family and the violins is that, apart from the kind of internal structure, which is a bit different, is that they have a flatter bridge than the violin family. So the violin family instruments have a, a curved bridge where the strings kind of are held up over the body of the instrument by the bridge, um, which is designed that way so that it allows the player easily to play on one string at a time without accidentally bumping the other strings and, and making a discord. Whereas the viol family instruments with a flatter, not not completely flat, but a, a, a less arched um, bridge, are designed much more for deliberately playing on two or even three strings at the same time. So you can actually play chords on instruments mm. of that kind. So the Lira Braccio had been used over the previous century and perhaps earlier than that as uh, an instrument essentially for laying down chords. And there was a, a wonderful tradition of singing to the Lira de Braccio by a single player, mm. almost in the way that today we would play the guitar and sing to ourselves. Uh, here you would hold the, 
the rebraccio and bow it and play the accompaniment to yourself while you sang. Mm. Uh, and there are some now recently some wonderful recordings uh, which have picked up on this tradition. Unfortunately, we have very, very few actual notated examples, written down examples of Lira de Braccio music. Yes. But um, some of those have been recorded, and I think Lira de Braccio players now are kind of building on that very small repertoire of written music to kind of reconstruct some of the tradition of how it was played. Um, one particular recording I came across when I typed in my, myself, Lira de Braccio, into Google was a fantastic album released by Uter Music back in, in 2015 called Sulla Lira. Um, and, uh, and this was uh, a part of a, a larger project called Le Miroir de Musique. Now, now I'm going to play this for, for audiences, an excerpt featuring the, the tenor Giovanni Cantarini and then on the, uh, on the uh, Lira da Braccio, Baptiste Romain. And we should be able to hear exactly what you've been talking about. This is obviously an older tradition of, of music, um, but, um, but there was perhaps fading out of uh, fashion, as you were saying, um, coming into Biagio Marini's time. Yeah, and the thing to listen out for here is the way that it... Uh the instrument is so well designed for playing rich chords. It's a fabulous sound, isn't it? And listeners, if they go and find this particular video available on YouTube, will be able to see the instrument itself. Uh, yeah, it is quite something to see uh, it played. <coughs> it's um, such uh, an interesting kind of warm sound. And one of the things to, about the way that it was played is that because it had uh, five strings on the the fingerboard and the, the extra two off the fingerboard. It meant that they could use the lower strings for playing chords and the upper string or two could be reserved for playing solo lines. So you could kind of accompany yourself playing a melody on the upper strings and chords on the lower strings or you could probably swap between the two and uh, so you could play a series of chords on the lower strings and then jump over to the top string to play a kind of a, a fill we might say today in between the lines uh, that you were singing for example, mm. um, probably while you were thinking of the words of the next line or making them up because this was also a tradition of improvisation, uh, of poet poetic in improvisation as well as of uh, singing and playing in improvisation. Yes, and I think that's a very important point to to mark that this is born out of the essentially the Renaissance ideal of of oratory and uh, the rhetorical aesthetic um, as in an, uh, some sort of declamation just as much as it is a musical performance and, and how you're going to uh, essentially make your your argument in, in a way to mm. convince your uh, your audience of, of the emotion that's that's being portrayed that's right and one of the really interesting things about this is that it represents probably the ideal that 
uh, Italian and also French musicians of this period uh, were harking back to, which was about uh, trying to recreate the idea of ancient Greek music. Um, and part of that was the concept of the kind of what we would might, might now call the singer-songwriter, where it's uh, one person who sings and accompanies themselves at the same time. And, of course, this was also common on the lute, uh, where you could sing and, and play your own accompaniment. Uh, and it gives that kind of sense of unity, the uh, con- complete control over the performance when it's all being done by one person, which, mm. of course, we get a lot in, in popular music today as well and in folk music because uh, it really does um, kind of focus us down on the work of one particular artist. Uh, and so coming back to Marini, I think that's what he is trying to emulate in this piece because he switches in different sections between playing chords um, on the lower three strings, exactly in the way that you would do on the lira da braccio, uh, and then playing melodic lines on the upper string. And uh, so when he describes it in the, the title as a capriccio to play on the violin uh, with three strings in the mode of the lira, so the three strings are operating in the mode of the, the lira da braccio, and the other string, the top string, is operating in the mode of the violin, as it were, uh, is playing the solos. And because uh, the, the violin is not completely unaccompanied, as it would have been on the historically on the Lira de Braccio, um, he has uh, a continuo bass group, of course, to accompany. And that means that when he has the little solo interludes, they can play the bass and the accompaniment. And, and so he can kind of go more into violin mode. Mm. Um, so it's a very clever piece that way. Uh, and one of the things that stands out is this um, playing three notes at once, the triple stopping um, which is, of course, the thing that harks back to the letter de Braccio. Uh, and it's a, a kind of trick that Marini does in a number of pieces, though usually it's, it's double-stopping, playing on two strings at a time, playing three strings at a time, well-suited to the viols, but really hard to do on the violin. Yes, at the, at the time, perhaps the term that his uh, colleagues used was way out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty... It was literally invenzioni. These were new ideas. These were invented, uh, sometimes, techniques. Yeah, and he actually uses the term, I think, new and curious inventions in yeah. the title of his Opus 8. And incidentally, there's a wonderful new book uh, just recently under that title, um, New and Curious Inventions. I think that's the right title, yes. uh, which... Um, explores this whole idea of, of the development of technology around this period mm. because um, the violin is a really sophisticated piece of technology for the period and he's exploring all the things that you can do with it. So, But one of the problems he has is because he's doing this on the violin and not on a viral-type instrument, how do you actually play those chords um, with uh, three notes at, at a time? Uh, with a baroque bow, it's kind of possible to do, to play them all at once. And some, so there are really interesting recordings of this piece. There are several out there and you can you know find them on YouTube or um, other streaming services. And they tend to be divided between violinists who do recreate that kind of full chordal sound of playing on all three strings at once and those who use a more kind of violinistic uh, idiom of playing across the strings and creating that sense of chords by not playing them all three at the same time, but by kind of alternating across them in broken mm. chords, uh, which produces a similar kind of chordal effect, but of course it gives it a much kind of more rhythmic energy of a kind, which is also very typical of the violin. 
Now, before I play this excerpt, um, actually a recording by a group called Repico that I, I loved the uh, title they gave to this album, Assassini Assassinati, where they literally... Assassins and the Assassinated. Yes, the Assassins and the Assassinated, uh, where everything on the recording uh, has been either composed by someone who was an assassin or who was assassinated, sometimes both, uh, is, is, is true, which is, f- I mean, fabulous as an idea. Now, uh, maybe you could tell us about the term Capri, so what is a capriccio? Uh, yeah, it, um, it's sort of related to our English word caprice, which I guess is borrowed from French, so it's not uh, very directly related. But um, the translations of capriccio into English are words like whim or fancy. It even translates as tantrum. So <laughs> <laughs> it uh, is so something that's a bit kind of out there and exciting. Um, and uh, uh, so probably, yeah, whim, fancy, those kinds of words are ca- uh, capture it. Um, the point of it being that it has a kind of improvisatory feel. It's not like a kind of uh, thoroughly worked out uh, complex long piece. Uh, it's more like something that you kind of toss off as a, an interesting experiment or something a little bit out there, a little bit uh, kind of weird and wild and wonderful. And mm. That's what we get in this piece. can hear that um, those broken chords that you were talking about that arpeggiation and uh, the violinist Kinga Ujashi now I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name but um, what she's doing sounds very modern doesn't it it does and uh, that's partly because I guess it's uh, even at the time it was an experimental idiom um, and uh, so there are a lot of things that you know we think of as sounding very modern and we find that somebody's actually done them before thereafter a melodic interlude back to the arpeggiation as it were that's right yeah and i guess that's part of the the caprice of the piece that it sort of jumps from one to the other so that uh, it has a kind of coherent logic in the sense that you alternate between the two styles through the piece but you never quite know what's coming uh, so it uh, kind of keeps us in suspense a little bit excited to see what is the next uh, section going to be now following marini where does a, a, a man like Arcangelo Corelli fit into the tale of Italian Baroque music? I mean, Corelli is synonymous with, with the violin, as it were, and, and the repertoire for that instrument. Um, what's, what's his story? Well, um, his uh, lifetime overlapped with that of Marini to some extent. And that Marini lived a pretty good long life. He lived into his early 70s, um, died in 1663, and so... Um, Corelli, uh, Corelli's life overlaps a little bit with his, but he's a couple of generations younger. And so, of course, the musical style has changed and developed in between. Um, Corelli uh, 
came fr- uh, originally from Bologna, which was an important uh, musical city. Um, he got his training there at the Church of San Petronio, and um, listeners who have been to Bologna have probably seen this wonderful, enormous church, uh, which had attached to it a training school for musicians, um, essentially professional musicians for the choir and orchestra of the church, but of course many of them went on to careers elsewhere as well, and Corelli was one of those. So he left um, Bologna when he was about 22 and moved to Rome and stayed there for the rest of his career, uh, working for some of the most important patrons, um, including uh, ex-Queen Christina of Sweden, Yes, um, who... uh, we may recall the, the story that um, she uh, decided to become Catholic and, of course, Sweden was a Lutheran country so she couldn't be Queen of Sweden if she was a Catholic and so she gave up the throne and moved to Rome, which uh, for the Catholic authorities in Rome, of course, was a huge coup. Yeah. <laughs> an enormous uh, welcome ceremony for her and so forth. And she set, a, set herself up with a, a court where she then patronised a lot of the leading musicians and artists and intellectuals uh, of Rome uh, over several decades. And so one of those was Corelli, as, and he also worked for for the uh, other major uh, patrons of the city. And indeed, in Corelli's story, it really is a a testament to his talent and skill as a a violinist and composer because he had these extremely powerful and important and influential patrons. That's right, yes. He he was at the peak of his profession. He was regarded as the great violinist of of the period and orchestra director and and composer. Uh, And so um, even when the young Handel went to Italy in um, 1707, uh, he played. Uh, he actually had some of his music played by Corelli leading the orchestra, uh, and that was a great privilege because Corelli was by then the grand old man, mm. um, was the, the sort of the, the great uh, violinist of the the time. And having the support of those wealthy patrons and, and being himself quite well off by late in his life, he had the luxury of being able to essentially retire from active performance and concentrate on uh, composition, but probably not as much new composition as editing up and uh, revising his the compositions that he'd built up over a long period. And so one thing that he shares with Marini is that very unusually, nearly all the music we have by Corelli that has survived is actually published music not manuscripts. Uh, and that's because he spent this time in the last period of his life editing up that music and revising and polishing it so that mm. the versions that we have are really what he wanted to, to leave for posterity, which was very unusual at the time. But one of the effects of that was because the music was printed and it was sold in music shops all across Europe, his music became very widely known and uh, his compositions became the first things – the first instrumental music that we could describe as classics that stayed in the repertoire that people yes. continued to play for decades uh, afterwards um, and were regarded as models for other composers to follow. Indeed, as far-flung as uh, Scotland and, and other countries, uh, this music was being distributed and, and hence why it stayed in the repertoire, I'm sure, for, for such a long period of time. Uh, that's right, yeah. People were still playing Corelli and considering him to be the sort of great master for a good century afterwards, which was really unusual for this period when nearly all the music that you heard was new music. Now, the work of Corelli's that we're going to hear in Baroque in Bloom um, actually hails from his Opus 2, which is uh, one of the collections he put together um, slightly earlier in his career. Uh, perhaps you could tell us about the Opus 2. Okay, the Opus 2 trio sonatas were published, uh, first published in 1685, and it's a testament to their 
that kind of significance that they held, they were republished um, in several cities over the coming decades. But first published 1685, so that was a collection of pieces that he'd written probably over a period leading up to that. Uh, the Opus 2 are uh, described as Sonate da Camera, that is chamber um, sonatas, as opposed to his Opus 1, which were described as sonate da chiesa, church sonatas. Now, I'm sure listeners have heard these two terms before. I mean, trio sonata, sonata da chiesa, sonata da camera, these terms are used almost interchangeably sometimes, but rather incorrectly. What is the difference between these two types of sonatas? Yeah. The first thing to, to be aware of is what a trio sonata is as compared to a solo sonata. So, um, I guess most of the sonatas that we know from later times, from the late 18th century of Mozart and so forth and through really to the present day, uh, is typically uh, a piece for a solo instrument, either one that can accompany itself like the piano or for a solo instrument like the violin accompanied by a keyboard instrument. Uh, and that's one of the kinds of sonata that Corelli wrote in his Opus 5 are all solo violin sonatas. But the trio sonata was a really important uh, genre during just this period in the second half of the 18th, of the 17th century and into the beginning of the 18th, uh, which was for two violins and continuo. So it's a trio in the sense that it's for three in three parts, or three voices we might say, but not a trio in the sense that the, the bass part was often played by more than one player. So it looks confusing when you hear something that's described as a trio and then you say three, three four, five players performing it. The reason is because the upper two parts for violin are two equal partners, not really a first and second. Not, it's not one of them playing the tune and the other the accompaniment. They are all nearly always interweaving between each other as equal partners and then they're accompanied by the bass, which will be made up, uh, depending on the kind of sonata it is, of harpsichord and or a bass instrument like the cello and or the uh, lute or the organ. So there's one of the distinctions between the church sonatas and the chamber sonatas. The church mm. sonatas will typically have organ uh, because you have organs in churches. The chamber sonatas will tend to, to specify harpsichord. But he leaves the, the bass group pretty flexible. Um, so typically what he says is for the bass group, you can have um, the harpsichord or the organ and either the lute or the cello. Mm. Interesting, because the lute is a chordal instrument, of course, and so if you have a chordal instrument, you don't really need the harpsichord or the organ. So you can kind of mix and match. And if you didn't have any of the keyboard instrument available, you could just play the bass on the cello or the viola de gamba, and the cellists often played chords as well if they were needed. Okay, so that's that's the kind of makeup of the instrumentation. Now, the difference between the church and chamber sonatas is not just the venue in which they were played. There were some musical differences as well, though, they're not always easy to pick. Uh, the basic difference is that the church sonatas uh, have a more kind of fixed structure. They're in four movements, slow, fast, slow, fast. Uh, whereas the chamber sonatas could have widely varying numbers of movements, anything from one movement up to five or six. And uh, the chamber sonatas are more obviously based on dance forms, so they tend to be more kind of cheerful and lively and so on, whereas the ch church sonatas, as you might expect, tend to have a more serious tone. And for Baroque in Bloom, that's exactly what we see. In fact, this chacona, um, so-called, so uh, is at the end of the collection of Opus 2. It's number 12, the very last one and is literally just one movement chacona that's that's it that's what you get um as opposed to the other trio sonatas that precede it which have you know often three or, or more um, movements uh, perhaps you could tell us about this term chacona so what is a chacona 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, related to the the French form of it is the chacon, um, and uh, there are some kind of small distinctions between them, but basically they're all based on an old dance form uh, which uh, was organised around a repeating bass line. It's a descending fourth, um, So, it, and the, the term passacaglia was sometimes used kind of almost interchangeably with Chocon for a very similar thing. Mm. And it basically came in two forms. It would be either... Da da di da 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 di dum, just repeating, um, slower than that generally, uh, or in its more minor sounding form, da da di da di da da dum, um, and so it's usually that latter form that was called a chacon or a chacona. Um, now. It was originally a dance form and it was very handy sort of piece for improvising on because you just have this very simple bass line. You could play chords to accompany it and then you have a solo instrument or voice that could essentially make up whatever they liked over the top. Great for almost in the, the style of jazz improvisation, I guess we could say. Um, and uh, in fact, the, the alternative name for this, the passacaglia, comes from the, the word for walking the streets mm. uh, because it was played by itinerant uh, street musicians who could just play this kind of pattern and improvise and sing and so forth over the top of it. So that's the the early origins. But by the time we get up to the second half of the 17th century, uh, it had developed uh, a little bit out of that um, very basic early form. One reason was because composers are starting to write in a different kind of way in which uh, they move into different key areas where the obviously the, the original form just stays in the one tonality the whole time. But if you want to set up a kind of contrasting key area to modulate into a different kind of sound, then you have to shift it into a different key. And so some composers do that. They just take the basic pattern and move it for a while into another key and then move it back into the the tonic key where you started to, to make it feel like it finished. You know, mm, mm. Um, The other thing they did, though, was to kind of elaborate it. So there are some famous examples where this kind of pattern uh, was changed by adding extra notes. And probably the most famous one that people are likely to know is uh, Purcell's aria, When I Am Laid in Earth, from mm. Dino and Aeneas, which has exactly this kind of descending bass. But he puts in a couple of extra notes, which make it sound even sadder. Yes. He, instead of da-da-dee-dum, he goes da da Bottom, bottom, and then there's a little cadential pattern. Da da dum, bum, ba, uh, and so he repeats that. And it's so clever the way he composes it that the melodic line goes over the ends of the phrases of the bass, so that you never even notice, for the most part, that it has this repeating bass. Yes, and that's the kind of sophistication that's developed in writing this uh, kind of chacon or passacaglia pattern mm. in the 17th century. Now, in French music of this period, um, the chacon becomes a really standard element of lots of operas and ballets. And so we see one in nearly all of Lully's operas, for example, a chacon will appear at some point. But uh, because this is part of a much larger and more sophisticated kind of composition, um, they move even further away from just the basic repeating bass and uh, elaborate it so that it kind of feels like a chacon. It has that descending bass line kind of aspect to it, but uh, it's it's more flexible and um, and moves away from just repeating that baseline. And so that is, to cut a long story a yeah. little bit shorter, is what the kind of use of it that we get in this piece by Corelli. So it feels like a chacon. It has does have the descending base, but he actually allows it to move around and travel a bit further away from that basic pattern. Mm. And this recording uh, that I'm going to play for our listeners by Musica Antica Latina 
obviously I think takes takes exactly what you've said uh, to heart in in the way that they've gone about performing this particular Chacona. And um, and in fact, uh, interestingly, uh, you were talking about uh, Corelli being in Rome, but they've titled uh, this uh, this album Corelli Bolognese because he did have the nickname, obviously, of being Bolognese. Yeah, was, having yeah, he was from Bologna. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is the Chacona Opus Two, Number Twelve, by Arcangelo Corelli, recorded by Musica Antica Latina. Now I can I can hear that repeating pattern that you were referring to, Alan, um, but of course with a few more notes added in there. Um, how is it being varied here um, by by uh, Corelli in his work? Uh, well, he starts out by giving us um, a version of the the pattern, which is a little bit like that 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 Purcell uses, not as many chromatic notes in it. So he sets up the expectation. We hear that a couple of times, so we think, ah, okay, here we go. This is a a Chacon type piece. Um, but once he's set it up, then he uh, starts moving away by basically modulating into other key areas. Um, he starts off with a slow introduction and then he goes into a fast passage. Uh, so then it feels different because even though we're using the, the same basic pattern uh, at a different speed, it, it kind of feels like a different thing. Uh, he adds uh, extra a few extra bars in between the uh, repeats of the pattern to uh, create cadence points. Then um, he varies it by having the bass instruments play a whole lot of exciting <laughs> sort of variations uh, on the basic pattern. Um, and uh, as he gets further into the piece, then he starts yeah, moving it into, into other key areas and so forth. And he goes through some sort of sequences of, of little bits of the pattern, which allow him to shift from from one key to the next, so he takes us into kind of more interesting oral areas uh, before eventually guiding us back to, to the sort of home base, as it were, with the original key. I mean, the ingenuity um, that he's showing in, in not just this work, but in a lot of his music composition, uh, I think is indicative of, of how uh, much composers like Corelli thought about the music and the construction of the music that they were performing. Uh, yeah, they certainly do. They're they're kind of working within the traditions that they have uh, that have come down to them from other composers, but they're also experimenting and kind of pushing the boundaries and trying out new things. And that, of course, is is how um, art and music uh, continue to develop up to the present day. Exactly. I mean, we would do well to remember that this was popular music of the time, um, not so much popular as in at the pub popular, uh, but um, the setting obviously for this was slightly different. But at the same time, it was a living, breathing, um, evolving process. That's right. Yeah, certainly it was music for a sophisticated audience, but it um, it's music like just about all of the art music of this period that is intended to kind of reach out and grab you on first hearing. And that's one of the differences between rock music and one of the 
the things that makes it, I think, so appealing to, to listeners is that um, whereas by the time we get well into the 19th century, composers are starting to, to say to us, as it were, um, this is my grand vision and uh, it's up to you to try and understand my brilliant deep thought and, <laughs> um, and you probably need to listen to this piece five times before you start to get it. Yes. Uh, whereas in the 17th and 18th centuries, the composers are saying, no, it's my job to sell the music to you. I need to make it something that will reach out and grab you and be of interest and which you can take in and make sense of on first hearing because you won't probably won't get to hear it again. Mm. Nearly all the music is new. It, it doesn't get played over and over again. Uh, and so it has to communicate on first hearing. Yes, that paradigm shift was unfortunately the downfall of, of composition. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I think by the time you get up to Beethoven, that's I mean, it's just all downhill from, from there. <laughs> but um, now talking about uh, other uh, types of um, music forms that we're going to hear in this program, Baroque in Bloom, we also see two types of concerti, the concerto grosso and uh, a string concerto that's titled Sinfonia in C Major. Well, the title comes from the manuscript, as it were, Sinfonia in C Major. First of all, Alan, what is a concerto grosso? Maybe you could um, quickly uh, refresh our memory about where this musical form originated. Yeah, one of the things that's uh, a bit confusing about uh, the music of this period as you kind of get to know it is that some of the words that we're familiar with to describe genres of music are used in different ways in this period. And so we talked already about sonatas and how you can have trio sonatas, which you know we're not so familiar with now. Concerto um, is a term that is even more complicated in a sense because uh, – I guess the concertos that we're familiar with, again, from the late 18th century onwards, tend to be a piece where you have one solo instrument accompanied by the orchestra. So you have a, a piano concerto, a violin concerto, a clarinet concerto, etc. And we kind of know what we're in for. But uh, in the period around 1700, there were a whole lot of different kinds of pieces which all used the title concerto because all it really means is a piece for instruments to play together. In fact, there could even be voices involved in concertos, particularly through the 17th century. It just meant uh, different forces coming together and playing kind of indep independent parts at the same time. So that could take in uh, the solo concerto of the kind that became kind of the standard concerto later on. Uh, as famously, Vivaldi wrote many, many, many of those solo concertos. But uh, there are also several other categories, and one of the most important in the late 17th century uh, was the Concerto Grosso, of which um, Corelli was also an important composer and in a way laid down the, the kind of model which other composers followed through to, to Handel and so forth in the mm. 18th century. So the, the big difference, the, the thing that's kind of hard to get your head around a little bit with the Concerto Grosso is that it works in a different way from the solo concerto. Uh, it used to be... Uh, a kind of simple explanation to say that a solo concerto is for one instrument at orchestra and a concerto grosso is for several instruments at orchestra. But it's not actually as <laughs> quite as straightforward as that. The difference is that in a solo concerto, the orchestra plays the whole time and the soloist comes in and out to do their special fancy solo bit, right? In a concerto grosso, it's the other way round. The soloists play all the time and the orchestra comes in and out to reinforce them from time to time. So the solo group is not just any kind of group of instruments. It's a specific ensemble of typically two violins and continuo. Now, what does that remind you of? Yes, the, the trio sonata. That, exactly right. So the same people who would be the sort of uh, professional musicians who could play a trio sonata could also be the leaders of an orchestra in which – the, uh, they can play the whole piece essentially by themselves, but for certain sections, the 
a, a larger number of instruments can join in to reinforce them to create a contrast of sound. Um, and for the most part, that's the difference in what a concerto grosso is. And one of the interesting things about the ones we're going to hear uh, in this program um, by Grigori, which uh, have not been um, performed very much in the modern day and are not so well known, is that the, the thing that he's actually most famous for in this set of Concerti Grossi is most famous for is simply the fact that they are titled Concerti Grossi. <laughs> He's the, apparently the first person who actually wrote that title uh, on the, the name of his piece. Um, but effectively what it means is that he is sort of codifying the idea that you can have these accompanying musicians who come in and out to create that contrast of sound. Now, uh, Giovanni Lorenzo Gregori is clearly not a household name. Um, uh, what can you tell us about him, Alan? Uh, we don't know a huge amount about his life, but he was born and died in Lucca. He spent his whole career there, so that's in northwestern Italy. Um, and uh, he was born in 1663, so he's roughly a contemporary of Corelli, um, died in 1745. Um, and uh, he worked in court and church music in Lucca throughout his career. Um, he was a violinist, as you might expect. Um, and he also did uh, publish several opus numbers of printed music. So we're having a real feast of, of unusual printed music in a way, mm. this, this program. Um he wrote several oratorios for which the music unfortunately doesn't survive. Um, he also wrote a couple of uh, tutors for learning music, um, fairly basic instructional manuals for how to learn music. Um, and, uh, and he wrote this set of Concerti Grossi Opus 2. I think there are 10 in total. Yes, that's in correct, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in the set. Um, and uh, so they were published in 1698, so 15 years after the Corelli Trio Sonata that we've just been talking about. Um and uh, the title in full is um, Concerto, Concerti Grossi for two violins uh, concertati, so two solo violins, um, with uh, ripieni, that is with um, reinforcements, uh, if you like, se piace. Yes. <laughs> um, and then he goes on, and as well as uh, alto viola, arch lute or violoncello, as we were talking about before, they were often used as alternatives, with uh, a bass for the organ. Mm. All right? So his combination of instruments is essentially the same as for Corelli's church sonatas, except that you have the kind of reinforcing instruments. Um, and uh, so there are really kind of two ways that you can play this. Either you could play it as essentially a piece for a small group of um, of solo strings uh, with occasional joining in from the others, or you can play it as an orchestral piece in which uh, the your ensemble plays all together most of the time and there are just a few passages in which we let the solo, the leaders, um, basically kind of take the, the solos for a little bit here and there. And that's effectively what we hear in most performances today. And seeing as you've had your sneak preview, uh, what sort of performance are we going to get in Baroque in Bloom? Because there are three of these uh, Concerti Grossi on the, on the menu, as it were, and uh, listeners are going to be treated to not one, but two Australian premieres. Uh, yeah, and that's an exciting thing in itself. And uh, one of the things um, yeah, that's really lovely about this is having this mixture of different uh, directors for each of these pieces. So there is a, a slightly different feel to each of the performances. And the pieces themselves are also a little bit different in the way that they're structured from each other. So uh, one thing that you will notice in the performances, and this is just the way Grigori wrote them, is that actually there aren't many solo passages. Mostly it is actually the whole ensemble playing together. And there are just... Uh, 
uh, a few bits in particular movements where you get the kind of highlight. So it's almost like the um, it's uh, the little solos are sort of uh, the icing on the cake, we might say, or the the sort of um, the extra little uh, spotlight that just mm. falls on a particular player at a particular time. So uh, like. Most of the music on this program, it is really ensemble music. It's a, a great chance to, it's kind of, I don't know, like we might say, in a, a play is an ensemble piece, you know, rather than a star vehicle for one yes. individual player. Uh, and that's one of the things that's really lovely about this music. And it's very different to hear an artist's uh, voice, whether or not they, they be as working as a soloist, but also um, uh, essentially leading a group. Um, through their playing, through the decisions that they've made in preparation of a rehearsal, of a, of a performance. You know, this is also one of the take-home messages that, um, that essentially I've had with this particular program. It's been fascinating to see um, some of the other musicians of the Brandenburg taking these sorts of decisions and putting their own, uh, essentially, uh, footprint on on, um, uh, on this material, on this music. Yeah, that's right. And it is one of the lovely things, as you said before, that we have some really young musicians who are, are taking the lead on this. Uh, and so we're seeing almost uh, some kind of different generations, I suppose we could say, of, of musicians who have been trained up as specialists in this music and each have their own take on it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it creates uh, a lovely variety in the kinds of performances we get. Now, the Brandenburg is not the first ensemble to have recorded uh, these uh, uh, Concerti Grossi. In fact, uh, there's a wonderful album by the Capriccio Barocco Orchestra um, titled Stradella and Gregori, Sinfonies and, and Concerti Grossi, where they do all ten um, in, in terms of the album. Um, now, uh, I wanted to play in particular for our listeners Concerto Grosso in the Concerto Grosso in B minor, Opus Two, Number Five. That's going to be led by uh, the Brandenburg's Raphael Font. Um, here, maybe Alan, this music uh, in the opening Largo might be reminiscent for you of, of something. Why don't we have a listen and, and perhaps you'll you know exactly what I'm what I'm trying to hint at. <laughs> Now, before I ask you which piece this reminds you of, uh, Alan, um, essentially there's the, the continuous section has a, has a surprising role in, in this opening movement, doesn't it? What, what's happening here? Uh, yeah, what we can hear, of course, is uh, where we expect to hear in this kind of piece, usually the violins taking the lead and playing a tune, which is accompanied by the bass. Here, um, really, the upper voices, the two uh, violins, are just playing uh, effectively chords themselves they're just playing individual notes which between them kind of layer into a, a chordal texture uh, with kind of voices that interweave a little bit but very slowly there's not much going on really in the two violin parts whereas the basses are made up of the whole continuo section plus the violas also playing with them uh, in unison with them, uh, are playing. Uh, that's where the musical interest is. It's a kind of walking bass. It sounds like a jazz piece almost, in which you get that kind of the bass doing the, the interesting part. Um, and uh, what it reminds me of is uh, one of, <laughs> and this is probably not the piece you were thinking of, but the one it reminds me of is the first movement of um, one of Corelli's uh, trio 
church sonatas, um, Opus 3, number 2, I think it is, which has exactly that texture of the walking bass and the two upper parts um, moving kind of slowly, uh, interweaving with each other. But I bet you have a different piece in mind. Tell me what it I, is. I, I do. And and the reason why I um, the reason why I have this particular piece in mind is probably because I had to sing it so many times. Um, but, uh, but firstly... Uh, Perhaps I uh, try and play that. Uh, which movement did you say of Opus Three Number Two? Uh, I think it's Opus Three Number Two, first movement. Very good, Alan. Full marks. This is the Purcell Quartet, um, having recorded, uh, of course, the the entire uh, Corelli um, collection of of, of um, sonata, um, op- well, the entire collection of Opus Three. I must admit, I don't know every movement of every <laughs> Corelli trio sonata as well as that, but I've just been teaching that particular movement in the last couple of weeks to my students at the conservatorium, so uh, it's fresh in my mind. Now, tell me what you were thinking of. Okay. Except <laughs> this has got much more tune in the upper voices. <laughs> of course it does. Of course it does. But uh, I don't know what it was about uh, the Requiem, Fores Requiem I'm playing. Uh, as soon as I heard the organ, maybe, maybe it was the organ in Capriccio Barocco as recording, um, I immediately thought of this piece. Yeah. And, and that descending, that walking bass, obviously has been a feature of, of music for a, very, for a very long time, not just obviously in jazz music itself. That's right. Yeah, of course it has. And it's interesting that a, a composer like Fauré, um, much, much later on, is picking up on that kind of style. And there is uh, a long uh, history of musicians, particularly in church music, of picking up older traditions as a way of kind of signaling something about the um, the kind of antiquity of what they're doing. Uh, in the same way that we get um, polyphony being used and imitation, um, fugal kind of textures being used in music uh, right well, really up to the present, but particularly through the 18th and 19th centuries, it's often a signifier which points us to a sound that says, ah, that sounds a bit like church music mm. because the, the kind of you know Bach organ fugues and so forth uh, go back to a longer tradition, going back to Palestrina's masses and so on in the 16th century. Um, that sound of imitative counterpoint is something that people associated with church music. And so it's one way that, for example, Corelli in his church sonatas uh, gets away with some music that really sounds a bit too lively and cheerful, you would think, for dance-like for church. Mm. But he puts some imitation in there. And so with yes. that counterpoint, you think, oh, well, yes, that sounds kind of ch- church-like. <laughs> uh, and so maybe there's an element of Foray doing that you know, much later on, of referring back to an older style, which, uh, which kind of gives a, a sort of a gravity, a sense of uh, connection to the past. Mm. Now, uh, enough tomfoolery and, and jumping around uh, musical history. Uh, perhaps we could go back to the question of our second type of concerto on the program, the string concerto. Mm. Um, there are two problems. Obviously, this is a string concerto, but it's called Sinfonia in C major. Um, can you reconcile these, these terms for me, Alan? Yeah, there are several interesting things about this piece. Um, so this is uh, the um, Vivaldi, 
um, RV116, uh, um, which is uh, actually titled, yeah, Sinfonia, um, so literally symphony. Um, and that's a signal that it is something slightly different from the concerto genres that we've been talking about. Now, there is a genre of one of the many genres of concerto through this period um, is the ensemble concerto, which doesn't have a soloist at all. Uh, and so that's very similar to the sinfonia the, or the symphony um, in that it's just a piece for an orchestral piece for strings. Um, the difference is that the Sinfonia, rather than being kind of structured like a concerto, was actually an overture normally to an opera. Um, and so many of the pieces that have come down to us from composers like Vivaldi, which are titled Sinfonia, um, or Sinfonia as we say it in English, um, are uh, probably originated as overtures either to oratorios or to operas. Um, some of them may have also been composed essentially as concert music, as, as standalone pieces, um, and they have a, a typical form in which the first movement carries most of the weight. It's a, a longer, um, uh, kind of powerful, exciting movement uh, in a fast tempo. Then there's a slow, contrasting lyrical movement, and then a short and very lively finale. And that kind of makes sense in the form of an opera overture, because even though the music was not um, uh, leading directly into the music of the story of the opera itself in the way that later op opera overtures often do, where they'll give you some of the melodies that we're going to hear later on in the opera and so on, they didn't do that. But what they did do was set up the kind of the, the contrasts, the, um, the, the conflicts in the story would be set up for us in the uh, introductory symphonia. Um, and they did this by uh, giving us the exciting opening movement, which kind of gives us the, uh, the urge to glory or uh, struggle or war or whatever, which is typically the, the kind of uh, thematic line of, of many of the stories. Then we have the slow movement, which is the languishing love interest, the conflict. That, so we have the kind of conflict of love and duty, which is the basis mm. of most serious opera in this period, the duty in the first movement, the love in the second movement. And the final movement represents the happy ending because it all has to come together at the end where everything is kind of put back into to order, and as the great um, Italian poet Metastasio wrote at the time, it was about uh, taking, uh, uh, putting our passions from disorder into order. That is, our emotional state should be taken from being all kind of out uh, out of control and guided back into order and control by the musical experience of sitting through this uh, and the the dramatic experience of sitting through an opera, um, so that uh, by the end we are put back into order and uh, the world seems a more kind of um, balanced place, I suppose. Mm, mm. The idea was that it was to be a moral education in an entertaining guise. <laughs> and uh, so we get that kind of compressed into the form of the opening symphonia, which leads into the opera. And Vivaldi's clearly a master of, of doing just that. In a lot of his work, uh, we see this, this uh, sort of paradigm set up where you have a, a brilliant opening um, where everything might be exciting or perhaps even disheveled it's so uh, exciting, and then followed by a more languishing or, or slower or, or love-like um, uh, middle movement, and then with the uh, third movement, bringing all of those elements together. Uh, that's right. And, of course, most of his concertos follow a very similar kind of pattern, so that's one reason why it's sometimes hard to tell them apart, when there, especially when there isn't a soloist. Um, now, one of the other interesting things about this, though, of course, is the sources that we have for it. And uh, I think this is 
one of the, an interesting thing to talk about is um, we talked about almost all of the other music on this program being from printed sources uh, and how unusual that is that most of the music of the time was preserved in handwritten manuscripts and that's what we have with this piece which comes down to us in a set of manuscripts from the uh, court at Dresden which I know you've been looking into because you've actually been preparing the score for performance. Yes, one of the privileges of of my role with the Brandenburg as a librarian is to prepare this music for our musicians. Now, uh, not to say that um, that they wouldn't be able to play it from the page uh, if I simply print it out onto a, an A4 sit, uh, piece of paper, the manuscript it, it itself, but it's just not that easy to read sometimes the sketchy writing and especially difficult when, for example, in the violin one part of this undated manuscript that has been prepared as a set of parts uh, between sometime between 1730 and 1745 in Dresden, uh, several bars are missing as well. So you can imagine my confusion um, having to count these bars and make sure uh, that this piece is the correct piece and that these bars are all adding up and all of the players are going to get to the, uh, the last bar at the same time. <laughs> That's right. Now, that, that's a really interesting problem, and I want to ask you what you make of that. Um, what does that tell us, do you think, about this collection of parts that there could be such obvious mistakes in them like that? Well, the mass production of parts is probably um, more likely to produce human-related error than, than anything else. That's, that's what I tend to assume, that for some reason or another, uh, rushedly certain parts were being prepared, potentially by non-musicians or m- people who were not necessarily as musically adept as, you know, say, the composer, um, or a composer like Pissendel, who actually prepared the full score, which is a, a totally unrelated manuscript to the set of, of parts. Um, Pissendel's score doesn't have this problem of bars missing. Um, It's in the parts that we see some of these mistakes. Um, Hence why I had to work from both documents because while the parts themselves were easier to read, uh, Pissendel's manuscript was more often than not correct. (laughs) That's right. And one of the things that it says to me is that if the part, because the parts would be the, the, the ones you would actually put in front of the musicians that they play from, right? And if there are really obvious mistakes like bars missing, it says to me that if those parts had in fact been used for performance, they would have immediately had to pick that up and make corrections, right? And we yes. don't see that no. on these scores. So what that suggests to me is that this was not actually a set of performing parts. It was an archival set. And that makes perfect sense in the context of the Dresden court because what we know is that um, uh, Georg Piesendel, who was uh, from 1729 the concertmaster, the leader of the orchestra, um, copied out a lot of uh, music and composed also a lot of music himself for the orchestra. And so the parts that have come down for us for many of these pieces come from his personal collection. Mm. Uh, And that's where the, the full score seems to come from. Whereas the parts appear to have been made separately as archival copies, which went into the court library um, in case performances were wanted uh, later on, just so that they would have a, a record of this collection of material. So, um, the, uh, so it's a great story about how the, the materials came to be there. They're all kept in the same folders in the li- library of the, the court um, music from, from the court of Dresden. But 
they got there by different routes. Yes, yes. And indeed, we do see, in, as you're saying, in the performance parts that clearly were used for performance, corrections of that sort, because it is very uh, uh, easy to imagine, especially with um, the technology <laughs> that they had at hand, uh, mistakes creeping into uh, potentially the, the copying of, of parts. There are often um, uh, beamings or, or notes that are not quite in the right place or the implied things like whether or not the second violin part even needs to be written out because essentially they should just be copying the first violins in unison. Um, you know, those sorts of implied things that, um, that we, we see in this music. Uh, that's right. And um, interestingly, often where we do have a score in parts, it'll actually be the parts that are more correct because they've, they've been used. And so any errors in copying have been picked up and, and fixed in the parts. Um, but in this case, it appears to be the, the score that was correct. And uh, maybe um, because the, the court employed professional copyists, it was their job and they were really good at it. And so the music is written out very clearly. Oh, it, it is very, very clear. Yes. I mean, uh, having having looked at um, all sorts of strange and wonderful uh, music composition, especially in the graphic art score realm, this, this music is easy to read. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that's the job of the professional copyist is to produce a really uh, accurate and uh, clear and easy to read copy. Uh, and in fact, it almost looks as if it could have been printed, um, but it is, of course, handwritten. Um, but if they were just making an archival copy um, to go into the library and they knew that nobody was about to play it straight away, maybe they took a bit less care or, or certainly nobody checked anyway to make sure that it was exactly right. And who's to know? Maybe they just went on a coffee break and then came back <laughs> yeah. and, and forgot that they hadn't added that particular bar. <laughs> That's right. That All of those things are possible. Um, but one of the interesting things is that the uh, so the parts are in a copyist's hand, but the full score is in the hand of Pisanel, not in the hand of Vivaldi, right? Yes. And so there's still some debate amongst uh, scholars about whether the piece really is by Vivaldi um, or whether it was actually perhaps by Pisanel himself, because there's a strong connection between the mu two musicians. Um, Vivaldi, of course, was based in Venice, and uh, he travelled very little outside Venice for the most part, whereas Pisanel um, was... Uh, a court musician for what was the, the man who was then the crown prince of Saxony, um, based in Dresden. And when the crown prince did his uh, grand tour um, and went travelling around to kind of see the world and become a, a sophisticated um, ruler, uh, he spent a considerable amount of time in Venice. It was one of the places you had to go, pretty, mm. as it even still is today. Um, when you were when you were travelling, you had to go to Venice and kind of see the sophisticated life of this Italian city. And the prince stayed there for some months. And so that meant that uh, during 1716-17, his musicians who travelled with him also got to spend time in Venice. Yippee! Yes. <laughs> and so Pisandel, as a young man, was able to then have violin lessons with Vivaldi and also probably some composition lessons. Mm. And uh, they seem to have hit it off. They stayed in touch and the uh, Dresden Orchestra continued to commission music from Vivaldi, which he sent up to, to Dresden to be performed. Um, and uh, some a lot of that music was then copied out by Pisendel and by his colleagues uh, and sometimes rearranged to suit the forces that the orchestra had. Yes. They added extra wind instruments and things like that. So sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between pieces that were sent by Vivaldi and copied out by Pisendel and ones that Pisendel wrote himself because, mm. of course, having studied with Vivaldi and being very familiar with and, and loving the, the Venetian style, um, his own compositions are very often 
uh, quite close to the style of somebody like Vivaldi. And indeed, the the interest was mutual because not only did Pissandel's um, patron essentially enjoy the music, otherwise he wouldn't have stayed there for so long, um, but um, he also wouldn't have commissioned so much of the music in the same vein that, that, that he did. Um, but uh, let's maybe let the listeners decide whether or not they think this is Vivaldi. Um, let's hear uh, La Folia Baroque Orchestra performing the Allegro, which is the opening movement from this Sinfonia in C major. This sounds like Vivaldi to me. I don't know about you, Alan, but... <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And um, the fact that the, the world expert on Vivaldi, uh, <laughs> Professor Michael Talbot, uh, certainly thought for a long time that it was real Vivaldi, I'm not sure if he still does, um, uh, is suggestive that it's certainly uh, very plausible Vivaldi-sounding music. Well, thank you for joining me today, Alan. It has been fascinating hearing one of your favourite topics, Italian music, of course, and learning more about the origin story of the violin. Uh, yeah, and th- thank you, Hugh, for um, inviting me. And it's lovely to be back and get to talk about some of this wonderful music and uh, particularly a program like this, which really kind of uh, zooms us in to the string family and uh, the violin in particular as the featured instruments. Um, it's, uh, yeah, a, a lovely um, job in not only recording the music but also filming it in a really creative and interesting way and, of course, getting to feature so many of the uh, really exciting um, young and established positions of the orchestra. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatory of Music, and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. 